And now, part two of my interview with Zalman Alpert, a reference librarian at Yeshiva University for close to 40 years. Before we end, I want to talk about your years as a librarian in NYU, but just one more thing on the Holocaust. One analogy I use sometimes now to argue, maybe I guess on your side, is that oftentimes in life, someone might ask you for a favor, and whatever it is, you're busy, you're not in the mood, you just say no. And if it's a person you actually really like, a really close friend or a relative or a spouse, whatever it is, you see how disappointed they are when you say no, that even though beforehand you thought there was no way you could help the person, you might come back five minutes later or a day later or an hour later and say, you know what, I didn't think I could help you, but the more I thought of it, there is a way I could help you. So I agree with you about that. I think there were far fewer ways to help you than people think, but I agree with you that if someone actually really cared a lot about the problem, they might have come up with things that maybe weren't super obvious at the time, but if they had really cared, they might have come up with something creative, which is what the War Refugee Board did. Because otherwise, I don't think it's so obvious they just bombed the tracks or bombed Auschwitz. These things were much more complicated than people think. First of all, the planes were terribly inaccurate during World War II, terribly. I think like 2% of bombs actually fell on their target. The Nazis were more than capable of shooting Jews with bullets rather than gassing them. So, I mean, these simple solutions I don't think were so simple. I agree with you. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you because, as I said in the earlier part of this uh, podcast, that people accuse me of being schizophrenic. You know, I don't view things in black and white. So I don't view Roosevelt as being Hitler. I view him as a human being who had his weaknesses and had his strengths. So I see both sides of the story. I don't have the facts to make any final decisions. And I don't think there is a final decision to be made. I think all we can do is just record what happened, that the United States in most instances did not do very much. Now, I just want to place that against what other countries did. The Dominican Republic did allow several thousand, and Trujillo, although he was a dictator, was willing to allow up to 100,000 Jews from Germany to come and settle in the Dominican Republic, number one. Number two, England, for all its anti-Jewish attitude in Palestine, did allow many German Jews to settle in England. And the best evidence for that, besides the Kinter transport, is a quick visit to the London Orthodox Jewish community, both ultra-Orthodox and centrist Orthodox, reveals a huge number of Jews of German descent in London, much more than in the United States. I mean, uh, I would say that half of the ultra-Orthodox Jews in England are of German descent. And the same is true, I think, of a lot of the other Orthodox Jews in England. I may be exaggerating just a tad. The next thing is, and American Jews don't want to admit this, Soviet Union whose attitude towards Jews needs a much more nuanced study. Stalin admitted over a half million Polish Jews, and those who remained in Russia, which was probably around 350,000, many decided to go back to Poland between 39 and 41 and were killed by Hitler. But those 350,000 Jews who remained in Soviet Union during the war, 99% of them survived. Now, Stalin easily could have said, I don't want any Jews. I don't want any Polish Jews to come to my country. I don't want to feed them. I don't want to see them. Let the Hitler kill them. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And I recall when the first Soviet Jews were coming to the United States in the early 1970s, I was on a bus or a subway in New York, and I heard the Soviet Jews speaking, and they were speaking in a Yiddish 
that was not my Yiddish. My Yiddish is a white Russian Yiddish. I also understand a Ukrainian Yiddish. These people are speaking a Polish Yiddish. And I went over to them and I greeted them and I said, how is it that you're speaking a Polish Yiddish? And they laughed. They said until 1940, they were living in Warsaw or in Lodz. But then they fled to uh, Russia and they were admitted in Russia and they survived the war. I mean, Tashkent and Samarkand and other places in Soviet Central Asia were just full of Polish and Galician Jews who were allowed to seek refuge there to the point that Russian anti-Semites said, where is the Jewish front? The Jewish front is in Samarkand and Tashkent. So the other allies, Russia and England, did more to save Jews than the United States. Now, that doesn't change what I said about Roosevelt because there are no black and whites here. The last thing I'll say in America's defense is, first of all, it did let in some people. I mean, not anyone beyond the quotas, but the reason we have a Lubavitch movement today is because America let in the 6th and 7th Lubavitch Rebbe's. The reason we have Lakewood today is because it let in Rivar Cutler. The reason we have the community I live in, Washington Heights, is because it let in Rev. Yosef Breuer. So I think it deserves some credit. Also, people forget the reason America was so against immigration is because we let in 2 million Jews 30, 40, 50 years earlier. And that's why America was sick of immigrants. And that's why it basically closed the doors. If we had the opposite, if I had closed the doors 50 years earlier and let in those 2 million Jews in the 1930s, everyone would be blessing America as the greatest country ever. What you're saying is true, but there were special privileges for clergy. So Rabaran and the Lubavitcher Rebbe and these people were allowed into the country, one, on special privileges for clergy, two, their immigration to the United States was the result of a great deal of shtatlanus by various people here. I don't think you can draw a generalization from the fact that several hundred rabbis were admitted to the United States. Yes, there were Jews admitted under general um, quotas, no question about it. But the United States government didn't rise to the occasion. Could they have risen to the occasion? I don't know. I don't think so. You know, <laughs> you know I don't think so. I think anti-Semitism in America between Father Coughlin and Lindbergh and dozens and dozens of other groups, Irish Catholics and Southerners and who knows, almost everyone would have been in, Roosevelt would not have been reelected as president if he had allowed another million Jews to come in from Europe. I mean, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. First of all, he couldn't have let them into the mainland. The only thing he could have really done is let them into like an American territory or something, because the law, unless he broke the law, I mean, the law didn't allow him to let in more than 90,000 a year or something like that. And I was just making the point that we should give credit where credit is due. Even if it was only a few people and only clergy, I still think it deserves credit for those clergymen. And by the way, I'll offend Lindbergh quickly also. His wife and daughter absolutely swear to heaven that he was not an anti-Semite. They never heard him say one anti-Semitic joke in their entire lives. He may not have been an anti-Semite, but... We can draw a parallel to today's terrible situation. There are many people who are opposed to Israel in the United States who I think are not really anti-Semitic. They are just opposed to the state of Israel. They honestly believe that the state of Israel is an imperialist state. It's a colonizer. They honestly believe that. I won't broadcast that because it's not a popular view, and I don't think it helps the American Jewish community. I think the same thing was true in 1940. Lindbergh was a supporter of Hitler. He accepted a medal from Air Marshal Goering, and he was in Germany several times. He praised Hitler. Now, either he was an idiot, and I doubt he was, or, you know, he was a supporter of Hitler. You know, 
doesn't mean he was an anti-Semite. And I don't think Mussolini was an anti-Semite, believe it or not. But, you know, he imposed anti-Jewish laws and Italy later joined in extermination efforts of Jews. Uh, Was he an anti-Semite? Who knows? I don't know. People have their own reasons for doing things. Certainly, Lindbergh changed his mind after 1941. That I will agree. He supported the American war effort after 1941. But it doesn't matter whether Lindbergh was or he wasn't. There were many people in the United States, including many other ethnic groups like the Irish, who were big supporters of Father Coughlin in Boston and in New York. And one reads about these books about the Jewish underworld in America who were fighting proto-Nazi groups. Most of those groups were made up of not of German-Americans. There were German-Americans involved in it, but of uh, Irish-Americans, Italian-Americans, all sorts of people disliked Jews. I think the percentage of people against increasing the immigration quotas was something like 90% at the time. So. Yeah, the public was firmly against it. Okay, let's talk a little bit about your years as a librarian in Yeshiva University. I know it's not the best question because it puts you on the spot, but do any stories come to the top of your mind, fascinating stories from your years there? Well, I have a few that I probably have already told, but I'll retell them. One is working late one evening in the summer in the library. The only people I noticed there were myself and a Catholic priest. and. I looked for an opportune moment to approach him and talk to him, which I did find soon enough. And I heard a fascinating story from him. The man's name was Stepansky, which is similar to the name of the uh, gentleman who is now famous for giving a Dafyomi shear. And uh, he was looking for books on how Jews interpret the Bible. You know, I guess uh, Midrash Rabbah and things like that. And so I, I... wasn't eager to help him. I figured what I would say would cause him disinterest. And I said, well, one would probably need to know Hebrew to really get into this. And he said, I do know Hebrew. And he told me that he uh, teaches Hebrew at the Catholic Theological Seminary in Kalish in Poland. Now, Kalish is a famous city for Jews also. Morgan Avram, I believe, lived in Kalish and was a dying there. And other famous rabbis were also in Kalish. Elio Rogler was a Lithuanian rabbi who went to Kalish to be a rabbi for a while. Um, so I asked him, how does he know Hebrew? So he said, well, he lived in Israel. So I said, what were you doing in Israel? Well, it turns out that his mother was Jewish and his father was not. And they got married after the war in the 1940s and they went to Israel and he was raised and educated in Israel and went back to Poland and became a Catholic priest. And that was a fascinating story. And I did keep in touch with him for a while by email. There's no miraculous Um, ending to the story, is there? Well, I was hoping that by being in touch with him that maybe he would show an interest in Judaism, but I think he was too far gone by that time. Unfortunately, not. maybe there is that I don't know about it. So that's also possible. I hope, right. you know, I pray. And another interesting, not a story, but an interesting thing is at one point the library was throwing out the old cards which indicated which books were borrowed and by whom. And this was done by hand, which was to, in the 1950s when I was a little boy. I still remember that, too. You went into the library, you borrowed a book, you filled out a card, the name of the book and what time it was due and who you were. Fine. 
so we were throwing out these cards and, you know, I'm always interested in anything and everything, especially in garbage. And I put some out of the garbage pail and I went through them and I saw a few that were interesting that they said this safer was borrowed on 1942 or 43 by Rabbi Aaron Kotler. And so I fished those cards out, and I figured I would write about it. But then, I won't mention the person's name, another person I was talking to in YU to help me, uh, not in writing about it, but to give me a, a venue to write about it, he did a stupid thing. He went to Pearl Berger, who was the dean of libraries, and he asked her for permission. Now, I never would have asked for permission. Because I know when you ask for something, it's like in the halacha, when you're asking, are you permitted to do it? Most probably you'll get an answer saying no. So if you really want to do it, do it. And so it was um, the garbage also it wasn't like it was on the shelf. So, well, absolutely. So Pearl called me a little bit later and she said, you know, she recognizes that it was in the garbage and that I fished it out and that it, it belongs to me. But she asked me as a personal favor not to write about Rabbi Aaron Cutler in the library, which, you know, as long as she was in the library, I kept my word. I did not write about it. But a few years ago on the blog of Yisrael Mizrahi, I published copies of these cards. Now, whether it was Rabbi Aaron's signature on it, I don't think it was. People who know his signature said it wasn't. But that doesn't mean that he didn't use these books and that the person was his shliach. And as the Gemara tells us, shliach Adam Kamoso. So um, it's interesting that while Rabaran was one of the few Russian shivas between the interwar period who, when visiting the U.S., refused to give a shear in YU. I think he and Rabbi Hanan Wasserman were the only two who refused. People like Rabbi Baruch Beer Leowitz gave a shear in YU, and Rabbi Shemeshkop even became a visiting Rosh Hashiva for over a year at YU. Rabarn didn't, but even Rabarn didn't think it was wrong to borrow books from Yeshiva University. And he may have even been in the building, uh, in the old library building, which is interesting because all the years I worked in YU, I did meet many Hasidic rabbis who came to the library. I met Hasidic rabbis, Dayonim, who came to YU. I rarely, if ever, met anyone who was part of the yeshiva world because YU was just too close to the yeshiva world for comfort. And people in the yeshiva world did not want to grant YU any recognition out of a misplaced fear that their own students would then all leave to YU, which, you know, it's just totally misplaced. I think I met several Rosh Yeshivas from Israel who came to YU, but no one from America. And as a matter of fact, one person from Lakewood called about certain rare books, and we went out of our way to help him on the phone. And when he said if he could use them, I said he'd have to come. And he said, are there any women in the library? And uh, I said, of course there are. And he said, no, you can't come. And uh, as far as a coda to the story, there were many Satmar Hasidim who used the library. And one Satmar Hasid, I won't mention his name, came over to me and gratuitously said that the way the women dress in YU in the library is much more tzniistic and low-key than the way the women dress in Borough Park. And I said, thank you very much. <laughs> and and I, Which I think, by the way, he was right, but that's besides the point. Um, so 
you know, the yeshiva world and YU were never really, but uh, it's interesting that Rabbi Arn did have some sort of a shyness in terms of taking out books from yeshiva university. Right. Um, I mean, I found in my research for Saul Bloom, my PhD, I found a document why you apparently tried to help save Rabbi Arn Kutler's life when he was escaping Europe. They officially offered him a job. I don't know if that helped him at the end, but there is a document that would them officially offer him a job to teach at YU which I thought was interesting. Um, I used to be more of a fan of YU, but recent last decade or two, or every few years they do something else, which makes me really question their commitment to, um, yeah, well, you know, to the Torah. I don't want to be overdramatic, but um, so I've become more cynical about YU and more depressed is maybe too strong of a word, but I wonder if you also had similar feelings about, because uh, it seems to me every time that something comes up in the culture, which is completely antithetical to Torah values, instead of why you standing up in the public square and saying, we stand for biblical values, and this is against the biblical tradition and biblical vision, they can make such a Kiddush Hashem, instead of making Kiddush Hashem, they always go out of their way to try to escape making Kiddush Hashem and trying to bend over backwards to the most radical elements of American culture. I wonder if you had any thoughts on that, if you saw any trajectory over your years of why you're getting better or worse. I would tend to agree with you that, you know, unfortunately, uh, YU tries to play every game in town. And both the student body is also problematic. You know, when I was a student in YU, going back to, let's say, 1965, there were very few students in YU who walked around with black hats, and there were very few students in YU who uh, wore white shirts and uh, black slacks, but almost everyone in YU wore a yarmulke on campus. Fast forward to uh, when I left in 2015, there must have been 20% of the YU student body who no longer wore yarmulkes on campus, which was really, uh, I wasn't the only one who was upset about that. And the president at that time of YU was encouraging women from Stern to come up, and hundreds of women were in the main campus almost all day round, whereas prior to his assuming the presidency, when Rabbi Liam was president, women from Stern were only seen after hours, which means after five o'clock or after six o'clock when they came to use the library. And, you know, I am not a fanatic. They came to use the library and to meet men. There's nothing wrong with meeting men, you know, in a good civilized manner. But under Rabbi Liam's successor, women were just hanging around the campus day and night, which I think destroyed the yeshiva atmosphere of Yeshiva University. Now, when it came to um, certain clubs, homosexual clubs, I think the university really backfired. And I think they should have taken a much more uh, steadfast stand. And even to the point of giving up on the money, they should have said, well, you know, if we're going to lose X million dollars, let it be. We're going to do a Kiddush Hashem. We're not going to get involved in this sort of thing. But they didn't. Instead, they looked for, uh, if I can be accused of being a uh, anti-Semite, they used Talmudic sophistry to try getting around why such clubs were permitted in YU. Now, that sophistry didn't hold water, in my opinion. So, yeah. I don't know what's going on on, the, on YU campus now. I do know the one thing, and I don't care what anyone else will say, the Rashi Yeshivas in YU have very little overt power. Decisions are made by 
administrators, many of whom don't know the first thing about Judaism. Others who do have decided that the good of the company outweighs the letter of the law. For example, many years ago, Washington Heights Jewish Community Council had a Sunday fair in the park where local Jewish organizations had stands. I don't think Kaladash Yashurin participated, but Yeshiva University certainly did. But to my shame, Yeshiva University in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood had a bunch of women in short skirts manning their booth. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, uh, you know, it, it is just unbelievable because why you did not have people who, I mean, there were probably some, but by and large, some of the departments in YU were headed by people who were not Jewish, or if they were Jewish, didn't know very much about Judaism. And one of those departments was, was PR. Mr. Hornstein retired, and he was replaced by a non-Jew who may have been an effective person, but he and his staff, and I knew his staff because I used to go home with them with rides and hear their conversations, they knew nothing about the Jewish lifestyle of tznius, of men and women relationships, things like that. It wasn't that they were trying to hurt Wayu, they just didn't know. And so many of the publications of Wayu, their catalogs, etc., had pictures of boys and girls strolling along Amsterdam Avenue. Now, that's not a way of trying to attract students from places like Flatbush. And you know what? Even Teaneck and other places. So, yeah, I think Wayu is a confused place to a certain extent. The Rosh Hashivas are out of the loop to a great extent. And it's only when the Rosh Hashivas really need to put their foot down that they could make changes there. I don't know if they have ever done that. So, It has good things about it, a lot of good things. But on the other hand, it also has not really met its mission completely. And it does bow to foreign influences that are going on in the United States. Which is a shame. But all right, I think there's more than enough materials for our audience. We could go on more. But If I may just add one thing. Do you have one minute? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. I just have one issue that I feel is connected to what we spoke about that I have strong feelings about. The anti-Semitism that we have today in the United States, I think our media, both Jewish and non-Jewish, is not telling us the truth. And I think, once again, Mr. Trump is correct when he talks about fake news. And that is most of the anti-Semitism we're talking about is caused by Arabs and Muslims who are not Arabs. I really wonder how many of the anti-Semites in America and people marching are just plain American whites. There probably are a few, but not many. The second group, I think, involved in this, and again, our media will not say this because it's not politically correct. There's an abnormal number of blacks involved in the anti-Semitism, And one can see that from the pictures of the people involved. And number three, which is the saddest thing, which almost no one except for Curtis Sliwa on WABC Radio talks about self-hating Jews. A good part of what we call anti-Semitism is really not anti-Semitism. It's self-hating. 
hating liberal Jews, and they are children and grandchildren of communists and fellow travelers from the 1920s and 1930s, and they are the worst element of all, because I don't justify the Arabs, but, you know, I can understand where they're coming from. After all, they believe that Palestine is their home country. That doesn't in any way justify what happened on October 7th, not by a million miles, but, you know, I can understand their sympathy. Blacks, I think, have a chip on their shoulder, and I think they view the Jews as, uh, you know, there's famous Vort from the Hassam Sofer. Hassam Sofer said, I don't know why that person hates me. After all, I never did him any favors. So because we were very supportive of Blacks going back to uh, Julius Rosenwald, who helped fund many of the Black colleges, and uh, further and further until the present time. Blacks resent that as, you know, as would be the case of children and grandchildren resenting their parents and grandparents. But why do Jews hate Jews? And why do Jews hate Israel? That's a question that can't be settled in the halls of Congress, and it can't be settled by the president. It can only be settled, in my opinion, and we'll we'll disagree about this, in the office of the local psychiatrist. And it's a very sad thing that one of the three major components of what we call anti-Semitism are Jews. Right, except I think it's the first element. No one, I think, would have marched on October 8th except the first element you mentioned. The other ones marching now, I get it. Marching October 8th is thanks to our policy of letting these people into the country. We've doubled the Muslim population since 9-11. And all these same Jewish groups are saying, go to Washington to rally, go to Washington to rally. These same exact Jewish groups, whenever you have a proposal to limit Muslim immigration to this country, say, absolutely not. That's racist. Absolutely. I agree with you a thousand percent, not a hundred percent about that. (laughs) Because where I live in New Haven, we are overrun by Arab refugees. Now, um, even if I were a humanistic person, there is something called having refugee camps in place. These people could be settled in Turkey or in Jordan or in other places rather than the United States. I agree with you. And I agree with you that they are the instigators of what's going on. There's no question about it. But one should not overlook the role of self-hating Jews. I also will just mention one last thing, and I promise to shut up afterwards, that recently on a Sunday here in New Haven, I accidentally came across a huge rally of Arabs in the New Haven Green on Sunday afternoon. It was a rally full of hate and of slogans. So I went over to a friend's house who lives in downtown, and I asked him to call someone he knew who was a left-wing modern Orthodox rabbi who worked for the local Jewish Federation. And perhaps we could organize an ad hoc counter-demonstration. Now, his response, he probably meant it with good intentions, but his response was just ignore it. Now, to me, that was like putting a knife in my back. That sounded very much like the American Jewish community in the 1930s when things were going on in Germany. Just ignore it. Yeah, well, and the difference, I think, is Jews 
are much more secure in America today than they were 100 years ago. We are not first-generation Americans. We're like third or fourth-generation Americans. The non-Jewish population is much more sympathetic. So we have much less excuse, I would think, perhaps. Although, to be honest, I always blame the Israeli government for problems in Israel. I don't like to blame the American government for problems in Israel. I think it's an escape. I think it's easier for us to just look at America. But at the end of the day, Netanyahu can make whatever decision he wants. He can decide to cave to pressure or not to cave to pressure. The fact that he chooses to cave to pressure, and I don't just think it's pressure. I think he honestly himself personally wants a Palestinian state. So I think the problems, I think Jewish problems, we should lay at our own door and, and not at foreign doors. Anyways, that's just my... Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. I think there are two great Jews in the 20th century that spoke about this problem, and they both came to the same conclusions, that it's important to get rid of the Gaulus within the Jew as much as getting the Jew out of Gaulus. And that was Jabotinsky and the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He spoke about that many times, about the Israeli leadership needed to untie themselves from the United States and do what they thought was right and act for the good of Jews, not for the good of the United States, no matter who was president. And, you know, I can't help at this point but throw in my uh, my two cents worth and that's one reason I am always disappointed by the failure of that particular group, namely Chabad, of appointing a new leader, because the Lubavitcher Rebbe was a great Jewish leader, certainly a great Jewish political leader. I didn't agree with everything he said about Israeli strategy, but in general, he was usually on the ball, and he was one of the few Jewish leaders who cared about what was going on in Israel, and 95% of the time, his decision-making process was based on strictly Jewish values. There are very few people like that today. Our Jewish religious leadership doesn't seem to care about Israel. I'm not saying that they're anti-Israel, but when the Agudas Yisrael backed out of supporting the march on Washington, I wasn't amazed because those are small people. They're very small people. Even the religious leader of the Aguda today, their leadership are, are smaller than ever. But they backed out at the last minute. Why? Because Reverend Hagee was going to speak or because Matishol would be singing. Big deal. You know, if their Bacharim were going to leave Judaism because Reverend Hagee was going to speak, then all the years in the yeshiva would be a waste of time. But they did back out. Yeah, and I'm so amazed that people think of Christianity as our enemy. You know, the chances of a from Jew becoming not from because of Pastor Hagee is about one in a million. The chances of him becoming not from because of theaters and hedonism and, um, you know, if it feels good, do it. That's around 99% uh, in terms of the percentages of people who become not from. So if you're going to spit at a church, you should spit 10 times when you pass a theater. But we're still fighting the church and not the theater, which is amazing to me. But Absolutely, but... You know, I was happy to hear that the Lubavitch movement was represented at the march. But the issue is that what we saw on October 7th, that situation is not similar to what happened in June of 67. It's not the same as the 73 war. Dor, 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 shov, the Gemara says. And the Gemara adds, uh, dor, dor, parnesov. Each generation has its leaders and its time. And for this movement not to appoint a new leader, who would be able to uh, provide leadership, support, advice for Jews in troubled times 
is a disappointment. And it's not a service to the Jewish community at large, by the way. You know, with all respect to the um, people who are the infantry of Lubavitch, it's not like having a world leader. And, um, right, yes, and yes. so the you have to be careful what you wish for, though, because if you got a, you might not get the type of leader you wanted to get. I'm willing to take a chance. I see. Okay. You know, I'm willing to take a chance because I think there are people who, with the appropriate grooming, could assume leadership. I hear what you're saying, but it's important to have real leadership, and we don't have it. You know, I was thinking of rabbis in America, Russia, yeshivas, anyone who can speak out about an issue in the sense of what they say in the Torah, lo soguru, not be scared of anyone. I can't think of a person. I can't think of one person yeah. who, uh, you know, and it doesn't mean that the people that I'm not thinking about are bad people. God forbid. They are probably people who are Talmudic scholars. They're not political leaders. The Lubavitcher Rebbe had an uh, aptitude for strategic thinking. He was interested in this sort of thing. And there are very few people like that. You know, I was never a chassid of the Lubavitcher Rebbe per se, in terms of religious leadership, but in terms of political statesman-like leadership of the Jewish people, I always put him right up there among the top three or four leaders in his time, including Rabbi Soloveitchik. And there are a few others, Rav Cook, who died much earlier, but he too was a man of tremendous stature and political leadership of the Yishuv. But most of our rabbis today are religious functionaries or Talmudic teachers. So I don't know. And Lahavda, well, Lubavitcher Rebbe said you shouldn't say Lahavda between two Jews, so I won't say Lahavda. But um, the reform movement is also completely bereft of leadership. In the 1920s and 30s, we had people like Stephen Weiss. And, you know, whether I agree with him or not, and most probably in most issues, I don't, and Abba Hillel Silver, there were reform rabbis and conservative rabbis, Louis Finkelstein, later on Heschel, who were leaders of the Jewish community. Today, there's no one. Today, there's absolutely no one. I don't think most of us can name one reform rabbi, and most of us cannot name one conservative rabbi because they are not leaders. When Rav Cook was on his deathbed from cancer, Professor Zondek, who was the head of the Bigger Holm Hospital, came to see him, and I forgot what the discussion was about medicine, and Rav Cook said something like, I see you're a great doctor, and I pray that the day will come that great doctors will also be great Jews. So I pray that the day will come when great Jews will also be great leaders. I mean, and before I end very quickly, I'm only going to add his name because I know you are a fan of his as well. You mentioned two leaders, Jabotinsky and Lubavitcher Rebbe. You forgot to mention Jabotinsky is one of his main students, Rabbi Merikahana. So I just thought I'd... Well, I said that I always put the Lubavitcher Rebbe with the top three or four people in my book, and I had the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I had Mayor Kahana. I was very influenced by Mayor Kahana because until I read his book, which I think was called Never Again, I think that was his first book. I, so. I remember reading it in around 1969, and I remember turning on the television on Channel 5, and Kahana was there. And for the first time in my life, I saw a rabbi speaking about political issues in the same way that we lower middle class Jews thought. 
and I immediately became one of his. Uh, it was, as a matter of fact, that in the organization that Rabbi Lapin headed. I can't remember what it was called. Towards tradition. towards tradition. Yes, towards tradition. Those are the only two Jewish organizations in my lifetime that I ever joined and paid for membership. Uh-huh. Towards tradition in the Jewish Defense League. I actually someplace still have a membership card of the Jewish Defense League. And Mayor Kahana was prescient about everything that's going on right now in the United States and in Israel. Most people, the younger generation that I speak to, think that Kahana only was active in Israel. They don't even know about his activities in New York. But I still remember one thing he wrote in the Jewish press, which was that when you put a Jewish value in front of a Jewish leader in America, he will trip right over it. And this is so true. It's so true that we don't have Jewish leaders. We have functionaries, we have apparatchiks, we have bureaucrats, but we do not have many Jewish leaders. And if there are a few, they'll forgive me for not mentioning them. I, I at present moment, I mean, they may they may very well be a few. I just uh, can't think of any right now. Even those who were close to leaders have disappeared. You know, I didn't agree with a lot of what Dr. Heschel was about, but I did feel that he was very much consumed by authentic Jewish thinking. And, you know, I respected that. He was not one of my uh, idols, but I did feel that whenever he spoke, I was hearing authentic Jewish thinking. But today you don't even hear anything like that. Today you hear rabbis, reform rabbis, conservative rabbis, whose thinking is not based on Jewish texts or on Jewish life. It's based on woke. It's based on what's chic and what's hip. Yes, it's um, it's very sad. Like you said, their center of gravity intellectually and spiritually is wokeness. It's not Judaism. It's, and we'll work Judaism around this center Anyways, on that hopeful note, uh, we'll end. <laughs> so I, just so wanted, I, I want to thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And good luck. And uh, I did read your book, by the way, and I enjoyed it. Well, thank you. And it was the starting off point. I then went ahead and read his autobiography. And after reading the autobiography, I even began to appreciate your book more because I think you did a very good job in terms of uh, outlining his life and uh, what he was all about. So um Yasha Koach for that. It's a good piece of work. Oh, thank you. I really, really appreciate and, it. And uh, I hope your book uh, gets widespread uh, attention. Thank you very much. All right. That does it for us. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to it and giving it a good rating and a nice review if you're so inclined. I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast.